You're listening to the Centre Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message, recorded live from our Brighton campus. When I was thinking about the message to give this morning, I was struck there's a couple of ways that I can approach it. So we're talking about hope and peace this morning. And initially I thought that I could share with us um, that Jesus is like the hope of the world and the Prince of Peace. Um, but to be honest, I thought there must be a better way of approaching things than, than just kind of going down that route. So I thought, well, is there another way that I can approach it? And so I decided to look at the ideas of hope and peace a little more and how they apply to Jesus and apply to us differently than they might apply to um, people who aren't Christians or aren't part of um, the kingdom of God in that sense. Um, Maeve, would you mind shutting the, the doors through there to the kids' room? Thank you. And so we're into this Advent season now, and it's a season that hopefully helps us to think a little bit more about Jesus and about his birth and also his life and also his death and his resurrection. I know we Advent is all about like the coming and, of Jesus and the incarnation in that sense, but actually there was, in a sense, no point in him coming if he wasn't going to also die and also um, be raised to life again. And so that's what we're talking about, hope and peace. And I want to take us on a journey kind of from one through to the other, um, starting off with hope and then moving on through to peace. And to start things off, I'm going to share a story with you. And it makes up part of an extract from someone called Colonel Gonin's diary. Um, to give him his full title, which I'll try and get right, it's Lieutenant Colonel Mervyn Willett Gonin. So there we go. And he wrote a diary when he was stationed at a concentration camp in the Second World War. And I've left out some of the more gruesome details. You can check that out for yourself if you want to, but I thought some of it was a little bit gruesome. So he says this, and this is when he's at the, at the concentration camp. I can give no adequate description of the horror camp in which my men and myself were to spend the next month of our lives. It was just a barren wilderness, as bare as a chicken run. Corpses lay everywhere, some in huge piles. Sometimes they lay singly or in pairs where they had fallen. It took a little time to get used to seeing men and women and children collapse as you walked by them and to restrain oneself from going to their assistance. One knew that 500 a day were dying and that 500 a day were going on dying for weeks before anything we could do would have the slightest effect. It was shortly after the British Red Cross arrived, though it may have no connection, that a very large quantity of lipstick arrived. It was not at all what we men wanted. We were screaming for hundreds and thousands of other things, and I don't know who asked for lipstick. I wish so much that I could discover who did it. It was the action of a genius. Sheer, unadulterated brilliance. I believe nothing did more for those internees than the lipstick. Women lay in bed with no sheets and no nightie but with scarlet red lips. 
You saw them wandering about with nothing but a blanket over their shoulders, but with scarlet red lips. I saw a woman dead on the post-mortem table, and clutched in her hand was a piece of lipstick. At last, someone had done something to make them feel like individuals again. They were someone, no longer merely the number tattooed on the arm. At last, they could take an interest in their appearance. That lipstick started to give them back their humanity. Now, I don't know if any of you have heard that story before or come across come across that um, that diary, but I, it just struck me as a, just an amazing story, like something like lipstick that you wouldn't think, like these people are being starved and beaten and bruised and you know tortured and all sorts of stuff, and you wouldn't think that a piece of lipstick would be beneficial or have any impact. Yet, in fact, it was that one thing that gave them hope. It was that one thing that they could hold on to and grasp to that actually changed their situation, it changed their reality, that they could take care of their appearance again and they could feel like a person and feel like someone again. You see, sometimes the difference between heaven and hell is a bit of lipstick. Sometimes it takes a little bit of lipstick for you to have hope to get through the day. Hebrews 10 verse 23 tells us to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who is promised is faithful. See, we have hope. We have hope. It's something that that we have and we know we have hope. Why? Because God is faithful. And I, I don't know what the lipstick is in your story. I don't know what that thing is that 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 thing that you need to cling to to get through the day. I don't know what you need to be pulled up and lifted up and and feeling like someone again. But I do know this, that he who's promised is faithful. And that's why we can trust. That's why we have hope. And you see, the Christian hope is based upon something. It's actually based upon Christ. You know, in the ancient world, in the world that Jesus lived in and came into, there, there was a lot of different people with different philosophies on, on life and thought different things. Um, and the general consensus was that hope is not really a virtue. Hope's not really something to strive for. They, they thought of it as like a temporary illusion, something that you kind of, you know, you're holding on to, you're trying to put your hat on that, but it's not really worth you even bothering and that was kind of the general consensus at the time but the apostle Paul said in some of his letters in the New Testament that those people have no hope because fundamentally that they didn't know God you see hope to them was fleeting and it was illusionary and perhaps if that's what it is then it's not a virtue, then it's not something that we should aspire to, or it's not something that we should try and have. But hope in Christ is different. Hope in Christ is firm and sure and secure and true. See, when we believe in the living God who acts and intervenes in life and can be trusted to keep his promises, then hope, in the biblical sense of the word, becomes possible.
It becomes something that we can have and it becomes something that we can aspire to. In fact, hope becomes our weapon in the fight against despair, in the fight against the way this world tries to um, pin us down and and hold us down and keep us in our place. Hope becomes our weapon, not because we're hoping that things will get better, just kind of on their own, but we're hoping in Christ. We actually put our hope in something, place it in Jesus. Our hope is in Christ. And it's funny, at the time of Advent, um, we can focus on the coming of Jesus as in like the incarnation. But I think that actually the hope that we profess, the hope that he gives us and the hope that we live is not simply in the fact that Jesus was born as a baby, but in who he was in his life and in his death, in his sacrifice and in his resurrection. You know, we have hope for now and we have hope for the future. A steadfast, sure and certain hope. And ultimately, that hope is in God's plan to renew his creation. And some of this can sound like quite grand. It's like, you know, it's like Julian was talking about before, that that 400 years of silence. It's like, well, how many generations has to go by for no one to see anything? In a sense, we can... We can kind of be a bit like that in our, in our hope, in that sense. It's like we, we're hoping for God's restoration of, of the earth. God, God's ultimate plan, his kingdom to come, that eternal thing. And that can sound a little bit like grand and a little bit like, well, it's much bigger than me and it might not happen anytime soon kind of thing. And, and that, that, can, that can kind of put it maybe out of reach a little bit. But, you see, Advent is as wide as God's creation, but it's as simple as Jesus at the centre. It's as simple as Jesus at the centre of of all of it, of our lives. You know, moving in and giving us hope for our situation. That that hope, that holding on to that lipstick kind of thing, that smaller situation, that personalization of it. Because I think um, with both of these things, hope and peace, that in a sense, nothing changes if we just think of it in a, in a grand sense and don't apply it to ourselves. But if we don't apply to it to ourselves and we don't make those changes, we don't live like we have hope, then how can we show the others around us that actually we do have hope? How can, we, how can we profess that to others and that be a, a, a virtue, that be a thing that we, we carry? How can the world be changed for God's kingdom if we don't live like we have hope? Does that make some sense? You know, Jesus is central to it all because of his bodily resurrection. He's already entered into that resurrected life, the new creation. Now, this is really interesting, like you, th- you think about it. He's... He's our pioneer, it says in Hebrews. He's the one who's gone ahead and shown us what it looks like. He's leading the way. And in fact, he says he is the way. Um, There's there's another book that I've read that that refers to Jesus as the prototype. Like He's the one who showed us what it truly means to live like a human. To like do life well. Is that... 
you you're following that you know to to really be a good person and to be good at living and good at life Jesus is the one we can look to and this word advent um, as we mentioned comes from the Latin um, meaning coming and the earliest Christian prayer um, aside from the Lord's prayer that's recorded in the Bible um, was our Lord come and in in Aramaic, it's a, it's a word that you may have heard before called Maranatha, probably pronounced in a little bit more of a Hebrew way than that, less Bolton, more Hebrew. Um, the Apostle Paul quoted it in Aramaic, even to his Greek-speaking audience, because they recognized it, they knew it. It's like one of those words like Amen. It's like we know it across all the languages. You know, at the end of Revelation, among the last few words of the Bible, right at the back, it says, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. It's that same prayer again. Jesus, come. It's a prayer that indicates that the hope for the future belongs where? Belongs to Christ. That his kingdom will come and we want to be a part of it. That living with this Advent hope, means living with confidence that the future belongs to Jesus. Not to any structures or patterns of this world, not to any government systems, not to the way that we see things going and the, the news that we see and we're like, oh, it's all going to pot or whatever we think when we see that. Ultimately, this world, this future, belongs to Jesus Christ. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the one who's on the throne. And if the future belongs to Jesus, then it doesn't belong to those who think that they're in power. They think that they're in control of everything. They think that they're, they're doing it their own way. So often we hear those terrible stories on, on the news or, or in life and just in conversation about all the stuff that's happening, you know, and, and scaremongering from all sorts of different sides, from like climate change to Brexit and the fallout that goes along with that, to racism, terrorism, economic downturns, um, Donald Trump, and so on. And it can seem like a gloomy picture of the future. It's like, oh, it's, just, it's just so awful. Like, who'd want to bring a kid into this world? Who'd want to, you know... Or that kind of thing can be the kinds of conversations that, that you have. But it seems like the elite are holding all the powers. They're holding all the cards. It seems like they've got everything sewn up. And there's, not, there's, there's no way to change it. There's no way to, for God's kingdom to break in. But we actually live in tension. And that tension is the fact that Christ has risen. And ultimately, that's where our hope is, that the reality of this world, as we see it, is just a parody when compared to the truth of the kingdom of God. See, we live in a world where Isaiah 9 is true, and it's going to come up on the screen, I think. That unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I mean, are you seeing that? Are you, are you hearing that? It's profound when we think about it, that this is, the, this is the truth. Not the way that it looks to us. The hope we profess changes everything. So let's cling to it. Let's hold on to it. You know, let that be that piece of lipstick that when despair comes, when you see the way that the pattern of the world looks, the way that everything looks to us, let us cling to something like that. That actually, the greatness of God's government, the greatness of Jesus' government, and the peace, there will be no end to it. He reigns forever. And so no matter what it looks like, no matter who thinks they're in control, God's in control. But what does that look like? You know, it's a grand picture, isn't it? What does that look like kind of down on the ground? How, does that, how can we work that out? Um, I've got a little video that I want to show um, that hopefully will, will help. It's just two minutes. In the Bible, the prophets Micah and Isaiah uh, say this. They say, God looks down and says, my people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And then nation will not rise up against nation and people will study war no more. It's this amazing vision of people beating their swords into plows, turning instruments of death into tools for peace and for life. And I love that vision so much so that we actually met some blacksmiths and some welders that were like, we're ready to do it. <laughs> so we started doing it. We invited people to donate weapons if they had them and they, and they you know, wanted to not see them used for, for death, but to see them converted you know, to something else. We turned an AK-47 into a rake and a shovel, and then we took uh, um, another AK-47, and it made three little hand trowels. I'm convinced that one of the things that we need a movement of is a movement of life, of Christians and others who are committed to, to this idea that every person is precious. I live in Philadelphia, which we have uh, almost one homicide a day. And there's been an, an, a powerful movement where people of faith and conscience have gathered outside of gun shops and uh, began vigiling, began raising questions about where the kids get the guns. And that started for me not as an issue, uh, a debate around gun control, but it started when a 19-year-old kid was killed on my front porch. And that was what stirred in me this idea that, wow, what, does, what is God's dream for the world? I'm pretty sure it's not for one kid to die every day in Philadelphia of gun violence and not 10,000 people in the United States to die of homicides and gun violence. So let's, let's reimagine our country. Let's reimagine the world because it doesn't have to stay the way it is. Powerful stuff. On the, on the back of his, um, on, right towards the end there, it, it shot a picture of a door a front door, and it said on the door, heal all that is broken in our hearts, in our world, in our streets. Amen. And that's, that's a prayer that he actually has painted on his front door.
when we, when we think about hope, when we think about peace, we, we can think about ways of living this thing out, of actually putting it into practice in a practical sense. And it's going to look different for each one of us. I think, though, that peace is a good place to start when we're looking at how do, what does the hope of God look like. Well, I think peace is a good place to start. And Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 5, say this. It says, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And... I wonder what does it look like for us to walk in the light of the Lord? In a sense, it looks like beating your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. Now, not that we, a lot of us have swords or spears. Um, I certainly don't have a spear. Um, it looks like the Lord judging between the nations and settling disputes. It looks like nations not taking up arms against other nations. And not training for war anymore. But why is that? It's because God is on the throne. And we belong to his kingdom. You know, we're actually... When, when the kingdom of God is at hand, we're called citizens of heaven. Paul says that in Philippians, that in other words... Our national identity, the place where we belong, our patriotism, our belonging is first and foremost to God. Not to our country or our governments, but to the one whose government will last forever. And I'm not saying in this, don't be proud of your country or where you're born or anything like that. What I'm saying is, where do we belong? In What do we hope in? Do we hope that our country is going to rule over other countries and, and you know, or that our government's going to do well for us and um, provide us with a good future? Or are we hoping in God? Are we part of God's kingdom? Are we part of God's future? See, we're called children of God and that carries with it the responsibility of peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace in, in Isaiah 9. But what does, what does peace mean? How do we approach peace? What does peace look like to the world? And what does peace look like to us as Christians? You may have heard of the term the Pax Romana um, or the Peace of Rome. You see, for the Romans who were ruling at the time of, of Jesus, the first century, peace didn't mean the absence of war. But actually, it meant the rare situation that existed when all opponents had been beaten down 
and lost their ability to resist. In other words, when you fight someone to the point where they can't defend themselves anymore, and thus they're peaceful and submissive, not out of a place of choice, not because they want peace, but because they literally can't fight anymore. They can't resist. It's out of a place of oppression. And you see, that's how often, you may have heard the term like peacekeeping troops. We send in peacekeeping troops to bring about peace. How do we bring about peace? Through war. But Jesus' peace is in fact different. In a world that goes to war, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. He said, go the extra mile. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He healed the ear of the soldier after Peter cut it off as he was being arrested. He was bruised, he was scorned, bullied and beaten and killed. And he took on that punishment. And much unlike the system of the world would have you believe, he was honoured for laying down his life. See, his death was not brought about as he waged war, but it was one of submission. It was dishonourable as far as the world's concerned. And in that Roman culture, you know, dying on the cross was the most dishonourable death he could have. It was the death of a nobody. Yet through that dishonourable death, God raised him up to new life. That actually, in that, God won the victory. So, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. We sung, we sung before, didn't we? Every, every knee will bow before him. That's not just a nice line to sing. That's saying, those knees that used to bow to the government, the, the rulers of Rome at the time, the governments now, those, those places where we worshipped in the past, those places where we lifted up honour in the past to other systems, to structures of this world, they ought to be bowing to Jesus because God raised him up to new life. God brought about restoration that started in the person and the work of Jesus. That's the king that we serve. A king of peace, of non-violent resistance, of another way, of love and compassion and grace and mercy. He's the prince of peace and it's precisely because of that peace that he is the name above all names and he's the king of kings and it's because of that peace that he is our hope that he's the one that we can cling to and we can hope in his victory because his victory was won out of love his victory wasn't won out of being the stronger than the others and having the biggest army and being the one who could you know beat down the others until the point when they they oppressed his victory was won out of a place of love and it's out of that love that the lion lies down with the lamb. It's out of that love that swords can be beaten into plowshares. It's because of God, it's because God loves, so loved the world that he gave us the gift of his son. The one who we rejected and we condemned to death. Not because he had a nice message, but because he shook things up a bit. And he turned the world upside down. And I'm, I'm coming to the end now of, of my, my message but I want to just ask you what and I don't want an answer for 
um, for this. But what is what is your lipstick? What is your sword? What is your spear that needs to be beaten down? What's your lipstick that you need to hold on to? You know, in both of those stories, there's there's something that, although it's a bit different, although the stories are a bit different, there's something that that we can sort of visually fix our eyes on. That lipstick, that hope that we're holding on to on the one hand, and that spear or that sword or AK-47 or whatever it is on the other hand, that that in some senses we, we hold on to and actually we need to give way to God and to, to hope and peace. You know, cling, let us cling to that hope. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because he who is promised is faithful. And let us beat our swords into plowshares. And that might look like something completely different for everyone in this room because I don't think any of us are, are waging war against anyone anytime soon, or at least I hope not. Um, but it might be the way that you react, you know, when someone gets you the wrong way or, or, you know, before you've had a coffee in the morning maybe or whatever. You know, it might be that that moment. It might be, you know, the way that you deal with people when something goes wrong and you're in a queue and the person in front of you is not not kind of uh, got all their money and it's holding you up. Or, you know, it could be any number of things that actually we need to live out the peace of Jesus in those situations. We need to live out the hope of Jesus in other situations. And so I'm just... I'm just going to pray. I don't know if if um, if you're able, if you want to stand with me, and we can just um, just posture our hearts before before the Lord. So, would you stand with me? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast at Centre Church, one church passionately loving God and people in Burgess Hill and Brighton. To get the latest news or for any other information, check out our website at www.centrechurch.uk.